I'm here because I didn't give up. It's that plain and simple. I just wasn't going to give up. And um, I took a lot of hits and bumps and bruises, and I want to tell people it's difficult. But, you know, I've always have a, had a particular way I wanted to run my life, a particular way that I felt about my personal ethics, and I, that I was going to do what I thought was the right thing. Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. Today, we have a special guest on Freaking Out About Work. This is a first for our podcast series, a local but now nationally known celebrity. We're going to explore in this episode, number 18, the life of the newly elected sheriff of Hamilton County, Ohio, Charmaine McGuffey. We call this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking. Congratulations, Madam Sheriff. Charmaine McGuffey will be the first female sheriff of Hamilton County and the first openly gay sheriff when she takes office in early January 2021. Charmaine was appointed to the rank of major in 2013 and oversaw the third largest jail in the state of Ohio. Within a two-year period, Major McGuffey led the effort to improve the Hamilton County Justice Center from its ranking as the worst in the state to the best of the large jails in Ohio. During her tenure as Commander of Jail and Court Services, Charmaine was named Local and Regional Law Enforcement Officer of the Year, and she was honored by the Ohio House of Representatives for being named the 2016 Public Citizen of the Year. We would like to discuss today how she chose this particular field and how she finds dignity in this line of work. We want to learn more about her background, people that influenced her, so we can understand not only her remarkable success, but also possibly learn some valuable lessons. So, Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Charmaine McGuffey to Studio One at Gwynn Sound in downtown Cincinnati. Sheriff-elect, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Randy. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you here, uh, (laughs) Sheriff-elect. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, let's get started. I just have to be the millionth person to congratulate you. How do you feel after that unbelievable victory on election night? 
Oh, I feel fantastic. I really do. This has been such a climb. I mean, you know, I've been campaigning for two years to get to this point. And uh, that that night when we got the final call from the Board of Elections that that, that was it, that I had won, I mean, truly, myself, my wife, Christine, and my campaign manager, Mary Carroll, um, we really did just all burst into tears. <laughs> I, I can imagine, and you're watching those vote totals roll in, and yes. you, you're counting how many, what percentage of the vote is in, all that crazy oh. stuff. That just must be absolutely nerve wracking. It was. It was a bit of a ride because I came out uh, with such an early lead, such a, a big margin, and uh, they prepared me, you know, because uh, Mary Carroll has been in the business very a very long time, and she knows. Um, and she said, you know, just be prepared for these numbers to close a bit. And so they did. But we we were in the lead the whole time and we stayed in the lead. Well, you know, there's been some national attention on you. Uh, you know, I opened up the New York Times yesterday morning and there's a piece on you. And then I saw an NBC News story, among others, I'm sure. Mm. How does that feel? Well, it's... Um, it feels great on one hand. It feels uh, a little a little overwhelming on the other hand. Just the fact that I did not, I honestly did not anticipate having this much attention. Um, I'm I'm glad to have it. Uh, I think it's important that people understand my story, really for the reason that it gives hope. I think to people who have struggled as I've struggled, people that are LGBTQ, people that are black and brown and anybody that's faced some barriers mm -hmm. in their life, particularly in their work, that, you know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that, that you really can prevail uh, and do the right thing. Yeah, it's got to be a little bit surreal. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. I've uh, found myself just it really, it feels like it just kind of inch by inch kind of sinks in mm -hmm. um, as you think about it. And then uh, and then I look at the overall big picture and I think, wow, it's it's really amazing. But, you know, I didn't get here by myself. There's <laughs> absolutely I mean, there are so many people that lifted me and helped me and 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 gave me a hand as I as I really was on that steep climb. Well, you know, I have to give the Cincinnati Enquirer some credit because as I was doing a little research for this podcast today, I found that in 2013, the Cincinnati Enquirer included you on a list of professional women to watch. Right. They did. <laughs> they did. That's right. And so they say that in 2013, and now I understand that in addition to this podcast, you're going to be a guest on another podcast hosted by, of all people, Gretchen Carlson. Yes. Oh, my. I know. And I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be on both um, yours and Gretchen Carlson's. Um, but yeah, it's been, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Charmaine, as I was anticipating you coming on today, a good friend of mine asked me, so what exactly does a sheriff of the county the size of Hamilton County do? There's a million plus people, I mm. suppose, in Hamilton County. And I would imagine that not too many people really know that answer. So what exactly does a sheriff of a major metropolitan county do? 
And that is a great question because you're right. There are a lot of people that they understand police departments because of the way police departments function. Sheriff's departments are a little bit of a mystery to people in some ways because it's so diversified. The sheriff, the sheriff's main responsibility is the incarceration piece, the jail Mm -hmm. of that county. So that's the sheriff's first responsibility. The second responsibility of the sheriff is to provide security and services for the court, particularly Clown Police Court. And then the third duty of the sheriff is the law enforcement piece to uh, provide law enforcement services for any unincorporated areas that do not have their own police department. And uh, so our sheriff, and in fact now me, when I take office, I will be overseeing all of those activities. And the unique thing about a sheriff's department is it touches every facet of the criminal justice system, which is exactly why on the campaign trail, I encouraged people to vote for me because I know, and a lot of people know, we need criminal justice reform. And what better way to bring that reform than to start it from the inside out Mm -hmm. so that we can start influencing all of the ways that we intersect. And that's with public defenders, prosecutor's office, judges, clerk's offices. I mean, all of those things intersect with the sheriff's office. Yeah, it runs the whole gamut. Um, so this podcast is about working and the importance of work to people. It's mm-hmm. such a big part of everyone's life. So I'd like to get a, gain an understanding of how you found dignity in the law enforcement career that you chose. But let's start with your upbringing. Tell our listeners a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, your parents, your siblings, things like that. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for asking. So my mom was a single parent. I had two sisters. Uh, our dad was, well, I'll just put it this way. He was he was gone when we were very, very young. I mean, mm. he was no longer in the picture. Um, and my mom was really left on her own to raise us. And, and where do you fall in among the children? Oh, I'm the baby. Oh, so, you're the baby. So uh, you're the spoiled one of the yeah. three. <laughs> and my sisters would tell you exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we grew up in Price Hill. Um, you know, mom provided us with, uh, we bought, she bought a little house for us there in Price Hill. And um, it was kind of a rickety old house, but man, we made the best of it. And mm-hmm. we had a really good time in that house. And mom worked a lot of long hours. She was actually a masseuse at uh, the Slender Form. Um, it was a, uh, a fitness place at that time back in the, I mean, in the 60s. You know, right. nobody, yeah, nobody was really, you know, in the massage business um, back then, but mom was. And she, and, she maintained uh, being a masseuse uh, really up into her 80s. She was incredibly strong, and mm. she was very fond of telling people because she's passed on now, but she would want me to tell you that she only had women customers. <laughs> she would never take men. <laughs> so, so you got your strength from her, your physical strength. Oh, yes, yes. She was incredibly strong. And uh, so so she worked long hours, and, and there we were in Price Hill, and we all went to, my sisters and I went to St. Lawrence uh, grade school, and we were very, very fortunate to have that Catholic 
uh, education. Mm-hmm. I I valued it tremendously. Uh, the nuns, the sisters were great to us. And then, you know, as we um, transitioned into high school, uh, I had to go to Western Hills High School because we just didn't have the funds to mm-hmm. yeah, maintain. Catholic grade school back in those days was free. Yes, You know, you right. put your money in the collection basket when the guy mm-hmm. would come... Yeah. come through in the middle of mass. But other than that, the, the education was free. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'll be forever grateful to the sisters and the, and the priests that provided us with that opportunity because I really, I love school. I was always a kid that enjoyed being in school. Mm-hmm. So we did, so we were there and uh, we stayed in Price Hill. Wow. And, you know, all, all of my life basically until I grew up to be obviously in my early twenties. But, um, we lived on a street with a bunch of other kids whose parents were in pretty similar situations where mm-hmm. they were at work a lot. So, okay. you know, so what I did as an activity was hang out with the kids on the street. I mean, that's what you did. And you pretty much, you could go a lot of places, but you stick stuck pretty close to home. And uh, the thing for me was it was mostly, well, it was all boys on my street. There were no girls. Hmm my age to play with. And um, so I palled around with the boys and I had a great time doing that. I mean, I learned to play baseball, basketball, football. I mean, <laughs> it's it's what I did. And we started, you know, back then you didn't have video games or anything. Right. So we started early in the morning playing sports and, and we didn't go in until it was too dark to see the ball. So how about your mother? What kind of lessons did you learn from your mother? And I can imagine being a masseuse is all sorts of odd hours. Oh, yes. So you really were on your own mm-hmm. a good chunk of the day, probably. Oh, we were. You know, oftentimes when we got up for school, mom was already at work. She took the bus to work uh, right down, down downtown here. And, um, and, you know, she was still at work when we got home from school oftentimes. And she worked on Saturdays. So uh, we really had her for Sundays, you know, and and holidays, of course. But, yeah, she was a fantastic woman. And what I learned from mom was this. um, Make your own living. Don't depend Mm -hmm. on anybody else to support you. And uh, always be kind to children. Mom loved children. She used to say, children deserve every kindness we can possibly give them. And... um, Mom was very, what she taught me was to share my good fortune with anyone who needed it. And, you know, she taught us that not necessarily just through what she said, but by her actions. I mean, we were poor, but my mom was a very generous person. Uh, She loved our friends. She loved, uh, you know, interacting in our lives when, you know, when, when she had time. And, um... I just have such fond memories of mom just being that kind of person that really liked to interact with us. And she enjoyed us as kids. And I like to tell people we were poor, but we didn't know it. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, we, we just. Oh, you really don't. Yeah, you don't. I mean, you know, uh, we had, we played uh, umpteen million board games, you know, through our, through our lifetimes as kids. And we were, uh, you know, very well coached. And really on a more serious side, we had a tremendous amount of freedom as young girls. Uh, but we did know one thing, and that thing was, do not disappoint mom. Don't disappoint <laughs> her. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> she was the sheriff. Yes, and in that your kept house. us. That's right. That kept us on the straight and narrow. And mom was always fond of telling people, "Well, that's why I had three kids because I figure they'll tell on each other, and I'll know what's going on." <laughs> <laughs> so, in your educational uh, history, when do you think you thought or became convinced? that you'd like to be a police officer, of all things. I know. And, you know, I came to that realization. I still remember it uh, when I was 14. Well, first of all, my mom was very fond of uh, having that conversation with us uh, about what Mm. we were going to do when we grew up as a job. That was a, a very constant conversation in our house, and I thought about it, and I finally came upon. I thought, well, you know what? That would be great. I'd love to be a police officer. I can interact with people. I can, uh, you know, um, have the authority to um, to be independent. I think that's one of the main things I wanted is to be a very independent person. I wanted to be a person who had some uh, authority in the neighborhood. And I came upon that because, quite frankly, as we piled around with all the kids, the hierarchy was, you know, the oldest kid was in charge. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way you ran it. And sometimes you got a good older kid and sometimes not. <laughs> so I decided I want to be my own boss. <laughs> well, did you realize at that time that women were not allowed to be uniformed police officers? When you were 14 years old, you had yeah. to be a male. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea until I told my uncle. I was so excited about my decision. And my my uncle Nick, uh, just a tremendous guy, he had retired from Cincinnati Police. And uh I was so excited to tell him, hey, I'm going to be a police officer, I decided. And, man, he looked at me. He was like, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. <laughs> and he ran it down to me, right, why women were not welcomed in that field and so on and so forth. And, you know, um, I had spent so many years by then watching my mom do the impossible that literally as he was talking to me, I was thinking, well, there's got to be a way. There's something else like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I started making my plans right then and there. You know, I did not take that to heart. I thought, nah, that's that's not going to be my truth. Well, yeah, I think back in the day, the stereotype was that women were not strong enough. Mm-hmm. There used to be something called a bona fide occupational qualification to be a police officer. You had to have such and such strength. Right. And the courts eventually struck that down. Mm-hmm. Um so you went to Western Hills High School, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I did. I had some fabulous teachers there who mentored me. Uh, one, I'll give her a shout out, Jan Worley was her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was my driver's ed teacher, but she was also the basketball coach, and she coached us. And she was just a great, a fabulous, fabulous teacher, took an interest in me, and um, really, you know, really helped me uh, achieve my dream of going to college, you know by mm-hmm. giving me the information and, and, you know, helping me pursue that. Was she the coach of the girls' team or the mm-hmm. boys' team? No, she was the coach of the girls' basketball team. And I like to let people know that era and what that was because that was before Title 19, right? So we wanted to have a girls' basketball team. And Jan Worley stepped up and said, I will coach the team. Okay, I'll coach you guys because mm-hmm. she didn't get paid for it. There was no money for any of that for girls. Right. And um, and then she said to us, listen, guys, uh, we can't have the gym during any regular hours because the boys have it. 
So if we want to have this basketball team, we are going to have to practice at, I believe our practices started at 6.30 in the morning. We had to be there at 6.30 in the morning because that's the only time the gym would be available for the girls. Hmm. And I can remember getting up, walking uh, in the dark, got on the bus at, you know, what, six o'clock in the morning or so to get to school so that I could be at, at basketball practice. And I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything in the world. It was tough. It was hard doing that as a kid, a young mm -hmm. kid. And I tell you what, you know, she was there and she and we practiced and played and she set up games for us. And I'll be eternally grateful to her for giving us that experience on her own, you know, without any help from the school. That bus you got on, was that the school bus or was that no, a no, metro bus? That was metro bus. Oh, yeah, that was metro. We went back then, you learned the metro schedules, you knew them by heart so you could get around. So then you go on to the University of Cincinnati. Yes, that's right. And did you study criminal justice there? I did. I studied criminal justice at the University of Cincinnati. I was very excited to be there. And um, I was, I just was thrilled to be in college. That's what I wanted. Nobody really pushed me to that. I just, I remember the moment that I decided I was going to do it and made that announcement as I, apparently I must have announced everything in my family as it came to me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I made that announcement and that one made my mom happy. She said, okay, well, that sounds like a good thing. So I was there and uh, I got a great education at the University of Cincinnati. I sure did. I learned a lot about the criminal justice system that still serves me well today. So what are some of the things you learned while you're at University of Cincinnati well, in that regard? You know, I think back to one of the very first courses I took, which was Criminal Justice 101. And I remember the professor up there at the chalkboard drawing out the criminal justice system for us. So he drew a line. And he said, here's the beginning of the system, and here's the police. This is the law enforcement part. Mm -hmm. Then in the middle, he put the courts. He said, here's common pleas court, municipal court, and so on. These mm -hmm. are the courts. They decide what happens once you're that far in the line. And then at the very end of the line, he said, and this is jail and prison right here. And, you know, he said, this is the end of the line. And... I just always remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, you know, who works at the end of the line? Why would we want to be at the end of the line? You know, <laughs> I mean, who wants to be there? That's right. You want to be in the front <laughs> of the line. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we all wanted to be the police and that's what I wanted. And, and I thought, man, um, so at any rate, um, and, and the thing that struck me too, as I moved along in my career, I always remember that that model, because I also thought, well, what happens to the people that are at the end of the line who are incarcerated? Because there they are at the end, and there was no discussion about what happens to them. You know, they don't just go away. Um, right. They don't just lock you up in jail and then leave for four years, however long you're in jail. Yeah. I mean, you know, people get out, I found out. And it's just like, well, so at any rate, I wanted to work in law enforcement, but I took a job. Uh, after I graduated from UC, I took a job with the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office. And the Sheriff's Office at that time, and still does, they have a um, particular policy that you have to work in the jail. That's where you start. 
That's your beginning job. Mm -hmm. And then you can work your way through the department, which made sense to me. I got that. So, um, So I began working at the old workhouse. That was my first day of work. I showed up at the old workhouse. Over there in Camp Washington. Yes, yes. And it had been, it was a building that had been built just after the Civil War. Oh, my gosh. So. I can remember driving down I-75 and seeing that place. Mm, yeah. And this, those walls you'd see be like, I don't want to go in there. Yeah. It looked like an old castle or something that was. It did. Yeah. And uh, so I. The, my first day at the old workhouse, um, I found my way to the door they described. I, no one escorted me. No, they gave me. I they called me, said, "Come pick up your uniform." I did that, wore it down. They told me where to go. I walked in the door when they buzzed it open, and I found my way down a hallway, and I encountered Captain Gibson, who was in charge of the women, and I came to love her and respect her so much. But boy, she could. She was a hard one. And uh, she threw some keys at me. And she said, now I'm going to tell you where to go. (laughs) So I said, okay. So she described where my next post was. And I went up to 4A and B. And you had to go up these, down the halls, you know, up these steps. And I knocked on the door. There was a little tiny window in the door. And uh, an officer came out, handed me a bunch of other keys and said, hey, have a good day. And I said, hey, uh, where are you going? Because there are 50 prisoners in this this dorm. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. Prisoners will tell you. And that's how my first day went. The prisoners told me how that dorm gets run. I knew enough not to give them the keys. So uh, there you go. <laughs> well, you mentioned two women in that story. Yes. Were the Was the workforce essentially segregated? In other it words, did the women work for women? Mm-hmm. Did you oversee female inmates or were you overseeing male inmates as well? Well, I oversaw female inmates until I took a promotional test and I became a sergeant. And for some reason, I thought it was a little odd, but for some reason, once you made supervision, then you were sectioned out to wherever they wanted you or needed Hmm. you in the jail. So I moved over to the male side as a sergeant Um, and I would kind of be able to go back back and forth. So you've mentioned uh, your coach in high school. You've mm-hmm. mentioned your mother. Yeah. Are there other people that had a particular influence on you and your choice to pursue law enforcement that you can recall? Oh, absolutely. And I do want to mention one of my uh, professors that taught me so, so very much about social justice. And her name was Joanne Belknap. And she was a professor at, she was then at the University of Cincinnati, has since moved on to Colorado. Um, But, you know, her perspective, because when I came into that at the university, it was all men teaching criminal justice. And when she came on, um, she... um, gave me a perspective of social justice that went beyond what happens in law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was about minorities and women. And, you know, I remember her showing us that film, Eyes on the Prize. And that was really my very first look at, you know, I was such a young adult then, um, at what happened to African-American people in our country. You know, um, and I'll just never forget watching that and thinking, wow, that's uh, it influenced me a great deal. 
So, yeah, so I would say, you know, and there's a lot of people that have helped me. I want to talk about Mary Carol Melton here in a bit, but I'm sure we can get to her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us about your early years and how it was to be a female in law enforcement. Oh, wow. You know, it was exciting. It was exhilarating. It was fun. And it was difficult. It was difficult because... I didn't want to just stay a line officer. That was never my goal. And I wanted to be equal. I mean, mm-hmm. that was, it, it just drove me. And maybe mm-hmm. it's because I played with those boys all my life growing up and so forth and became a very good athlete so that I could compete right. with you them. Right. You knew you were just as good as they were. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was, better. Oh, well, yeah. I was strong. I was, and uh, so. And that's what made my career more difficult is um, beyond the fact that I was in that first wave of women that came out. And I I just have to tell you, the men really just didn't know what to do with us. They were like, what? You know, what is she doing here? Yeah. And you weren't held in very high esteem. Um, And as a young woman, you were very well pressured to to date the men that you worked with or at least hang out and party with them, at least socialize and so forth. And I really, I was a a lesbian even then. I wasn't interested in any of that. And I certainly wasn't interested in hanging out and partying with those guys because all I ever saw them do is get in trouble. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. I don't want to be anywhere near that. (laughs) So. So the sheriff at the time, when you came on the force in 1983, Mm hmm was that our good friend Simon Lease? No, that was Lincoln Stokes. Okay, Lincoln Stokes. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you recall about Lincoln Stokes and the way he operated as sheriff? You know, I didn't see very much of Lincoln Stokes. I think I probably in total of my my career, I saw him three times in the, what, maybe four years that I worked for him, not quite four. Um, and... I, I saw Victor Corelli, who was the chief deputy. I saw him once or twice. But other than that, I really was, I was a line staff officer. So, you know, I saw Captain Gibson. She was, yeah. <laughs> she was the end all be all right there for me, you know. Um, but I will tell you something that I found interesting. I did interview with Chief Corelli. I didn't interview with Lincoln Stokes. And I really needed a job. I mean, I needed a job. Like, I'm right out of college. I, I want to be hired. So... I went in and interviewed with Victor Corelli, Chief Corelli, and the interview went well. And he told me, yeah, I I think you'd be okay for this job. We'll hire you. And, you know, I was real happy about that. And at some point in time when I became a supervisor, I happened upon my own file that apparently was created Hmm. the moment that he interviewed me. And so I looked in that file. And interestingly enough, his one comment that he wrote, well, there were two, one, yes, we'll hire her. And the, the other comment was, she's not very feminine. Really? Yeah. And I, I just, I remember looking at that thinking, why does that matter? Why would that matter? Right. You, you kind of wonder whether he meant that as a plus or a minus. Uh, I believe it was a minus, but I was over, <laughs> able to overcome it <laughs> somehow. <laughs> That is really interesting. Well, I mentioned Simon Lease. Yes. Did he succeed Lincoln Stokes? He did. Lincoln Stokes actually stepped down during his tenure. So Sheriff Lease was able to 
step into that role and become the incumbent. And then that was he was our sheriff for the next 26 years. And I remember immediately um, liking Simon Lease. I remember he had my immediate respect um, because he came in and he sat us all down. He had sessions where we could come and he told us what his vision was. And he talked to us. He answered questions. And I thought, wow, I don't know who this guy is, but wow. Because I really do have to say that um, under, you know, and this is not a, a dig on Lincoln Stokes at all because I, I, he was a good sheriff, I'm sure. But we had a pretty loose organization then, you know, and um, we weren't all wearing the same uniform. You know, there were some things like that. And uh, man, Sheriff Lease came in there and it became paramilitary. And turns out it fit me perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does paramilitary mean? I'm, people hear that term. I'm not so sure everybody knows what paramilitary means. Sure. So um, it means that you follow particular military protocols in the fact that you have policy and procedure, and that literally governs everything you do at work everything. And that policy and procedure also means that um, you can be disciplined if you do not follow policy and procedure, if you deviate from that. Paramilitary means that you learn all the commands, the render a hand salute, the dress right dress, the attention, all of those commands. And you learn that what I call a military bearing, which means you you understand how to stand upright and mostly to um, bring forth a presence. I mean, it really is a presence that's taught to you in that military way so that um, when you are faced with situations in uniform, which you will be, um, you are able to project your authority without a gun, without a, you know, without any weapons, because certainly we didn't have any of that in the jail. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why we have some of the best deputies around is because we learned how to work in a jail setting with people without any other tools for force. You had your military bearing. That's what you brought to the situation. Well, that sounds like a lesson from Simon Lease. Oh, it most certainly was. How about other lessons from Simon Lease? It sounds like you have a lot of admiration for mm -hmm. uh, Sheriff Lease, who I will mention to our worldwide audience, was famous when he was a prosecutor for prosecuting Larry Flint and Hustler Magazine, I think in the late 70s, I want to say, he tried to get him thrown out of Hamilton County and That's tried right. to, uh, I think he tried to shut down the Robert Maplethorpe exhibit mm -hmm. uh, here in town, which also got shot down, I believe. But then he becomes sheriff. So what are some of the lessons you learned from Sheriff Lease? One of the very first things Sheriff Lease did is institute a weight, height, and fitness policy for his department. Um, he took a look around and he said, I want my people to look good in uniform and I want them to be very physically fit. And, you know, at that time, I mean, we really, you know, there were some people that had let themselves go. I'll mm -hmm. say it that way. It wasn't me. I think that's why I fit so well. I've always been a person who loved physical fitness. So I was in shape. I was ready to go. And um, in fact, Simon Lease then... Um, put me in charge of his fitness program. I became the administrator of the weight, height, mm. and fitness program. Wow. And um, he did that 
in part because he saw that, yeah, I'm, I'm for you. I, I, that's exactly what I want. I could run. I ran miles and miles. I lifted weights. I, yes, I was very, very proud of my presence in that uniform. And, and Simon Lease had a way of picking those people out in his administration. You know, I didn't know anybody. He just picked me out and said, yeah, you know. And so I went to training. I became a trainer um, because I was a sergeant when Simon Lease took over. And then I became a trainer. And as a trainer, I came to Simon Lease's attention, um, I think, because I believed in a lot of the things he believed in. Now, granted, we did not see eye to eye politically, (laughs) (laughs) you know. I mean, and I was gay, so right. You know, and he was I, a lifelong Republican, no question. Oh, absolutely, and I knew, I absolutely knew that if he found out I was gay, my career would be over. I knew that I, you know, I I might even lose my job. I mean, so I was very, very careful about my personal life, and there were times I was terrified, just flat terrified that he would find out I was gay. Even mm-hmm. though I ran some of his most prized programs and really admired him, uh, that he would fire me on the spot. He sounds like a, a tough guy in the sense of being a very good disciplinarian, and he had the paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting the sense from you that at the same time you thought he was fair. I did think he was fair. I thought he was very fair. Um, you know, I was there for many of the conversations that he would have with certain employees that had issues, you know, whatever the issues were, if it was lateness, if it was some were serious and some were not so serious. But I did watch him in those interviews and and, and I watched him have, quite frankly, empathy for people. He really did. Uh, he was a pretty empathetic boss, all told. I mean, you there, you know, everybody was fearful to go in his office. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And uh, but you'd go. I watched him bring people in and set them at ease pretty immediately. When you were someone who had made a mistake, you could recover from, you know. And he knew. And so that taught you something about how to supervise people. Oh, it did. It tremendously did. I I learned so much from him, and I learned, and he did tell me one day, he said, Charmaine, he said, you know, people really want discipline in their life. People like to have discipline, you know? And, um, and I remember him saying that to me like it was yesterday, and I thought, yeah, he's right. And he meant, he, he meant discipline like keeping yourself in good shape, you know, um, coming to work and feeling like you're doing a good job you know, being on time, things that, you know, improve your life. And I thought, yeah, he's right. Right. This is what this whole podcast series is about, really about how, how people feel they get a lot of dignity from their work. I yes. mean, it's such a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned earlier, briefly, your particular success with the Hamilton County Jail. Yes. Right. Can you tell us about that? experience. Sure. So and we're when, fast forwarding the like Yes, fast forward to Jim Neal is the, now Jim elected Neal, the sheriff. sheriff. Yes. And he puts you in charge of the of the jail. Yes, he made me a major of the jail and uh and as the commander of the jail, uh I found and court services, uh I found myself in command of 600 uniform staff 
and the care and custody of 1,400 prisoners. And I knew from all the years that I had worked in that jail that if there was one thing we needed to do, it was accelerate out of 1950. I knew we were in that 1950s model. I'd lived it. I've watched people languish in it. And it was my goal to accelerate. And that's what I did. I, um, and I, I liken it to this for people. What I did with that jail was I filled in the moat and I dropped the drawbridge and I put the welcome sign out. Hmm. And by doing that, I invited agencies and people in to help us. Because the way that jail was structured, and that's one of the reasons I say it was in 1950, was it was a really, it was a difficult place to get into, even if you were an agency. It was a very difficult place to work in. Uh, There wasn't any, um, there wasn't as much flexibility for services and so forth. So at any rate, fast forward. So I, I brought people in and I began a committee, the RAP committee, working to refer appropriate placement. And I just put it out word of mouth. I said to people, hey, you know, who do you know that needs to come to this table? Who do you know? I had security people at the table as well. And pretty soon I had, and I had that meeting once a week, same time, same place, so people could find us. And there were times we had standing room only in the conference room because so many people came. And from those meetings, with all that expertise at the table, and I do like to mention this, not just agencies, but people who were formerly incarcerated came. I don't know how they got there, but they hmm. were there. People okay. who were homeless came. People who had been formerly addicted came. Um, and everyone was welcome. And through those activities, we fashioned out the Women's Heroin Recovery Program, the men's veterans program for veterans and the men's exit program for men who were getting ready to um, leave incarceration. So uh, those programs became very successful. And we brought a lot of other things into that were not as big as those programs. Like, for instance, we had Art for All People, a woman who came in, and particularly for the female prisoners is how we did that Um she would bring in art supplies, and we approved them all security-wise. So it was just these canvases, and we'd take the brushes, collect them, count them. Everything was done with the mind to security, of course. But the women would get to sit and actually paint a picture mm. with a you know something on it, and then they would have a uh, a session afterwards that was about motivating them for whatever the the word was for that that period, you know. It sounds like part of the purpose of these exercises was to prepare for when they left. Oh, absolutely. It was all geared to that. And I brought in, I mean, I I was very careful because I am law and order and I want to make that clear. You know, it took me years to build those programs because I wasn't, you can't just let anybody in your jail. Just because somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, I want to come in and help. Well, that's great, but you have to jump through the hoops and you have to be vetted. And all those people were well vetted and they came in, lots of them, it's some for resumes, some for how to get a job, some for childcare, some for housing, some for, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you mentioned Jim Neal succeeded Simon Lease. Yes. What are some of the lessons you learned from Jim Neal? Hmm. Was he someone you, you'd known in the past, kind of come up through the ranks with you? Yes. And 
I did. I knew Jim Neal. We went to college together. We went to UC together, and we went to Western High School, although I didn't know him much there. But um, Jim Neal gave me an opportunity, and he knew me from the sheriff's office and, as I said, from college. And when he began his run for sheriff, I talked to him quite a bit about what my ideas are and what I wanted to do. And he listened, and he appreciated it, and he gave me an opportunity. I don't know that I would have gotten that same opportunity from really anyone else that would take over, but Jim Neal gave me the opportunity, and I'll always appreciate that, that he did that, and I worked as hard as I possibly could for him. Um, What I learned from Jim Neal is, um, well, I learned how to create the structure because I watched him do it. I watched him create his new structure from Simon Lee's because Simon Lee's had certain people and Jim Neal came in and of course those guys, you know, had to go. They had to go on to other opportunities and Jim Neal brought in his own staff. And I learned how that was structured. I learned and I learned some things not to do. Quite frankly, right, and I learned things that looked good to me. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good transition right there. That's how you do it, and so, so I learned those things um, from Jim Neal. And as you know, we we parted um, on some pretty bad terms. Yeah, but one lesson or one takeaway from Sheriff Lease, yes, was his ability to be empathetic. Yes, that's right. And another takeaway, maybe from Jim Neal, mm-hmm. was his skill in listening to people. Yes. Which yes. are both great attributes. Yes, that's for right. For a supervisor in any kind of organization, people want to be heard. That's right. And they want to be feel like you understand their situation, can feel their pain somewhat. Oh, absolutely. And yes, and you are right. Jim Neal is a good listener. That's very good. Yeah. Okay, let's uh fast forward. You know, we've only got so much time for these podcasts. I think we could talk forever about this, but now, at some point, you made the decision to come out. Yes. You mentioned you were fearful under Sheriff Lease. Yes. Uh, so tell us about that decision, the, the challenge of that, mm-hmm. and the difficulty in doing that. Well, that decision was actually made for me because I was outed. And the way I was outed was this. I was 10 years ago. It's, it's been a little over 10 years now that this occurred. Um, I was leaving a gay bar with some friends of mine, a couple women that I knew. We just went over to watch a game on TV, really, a sports game. And we were leaving that bar at about 11 o'clock at night. It was over in Covington, Kentucky. And we were in the crosswalk walking to our car. I mean, that was it. And all I could hear is um, somebody started screaming, drop it, drop it, drop it now. You're under arrest. Drop it. And I I was in the middle of the street and there was nobody out. And I thought, I thought I was going to get shot. I didn't know what was going on, but those are in cop terminology. Those are gun words, you know? And, um, then I finally spied two officers about 30 feet away underneath this awning angled to the door of the bar. And I realized immediately, of course, that they were targeting that bar. They were targeting the gay bar. And I spoke out against that. So when I spoke out and told them they should not be doing that, um, the long, the short story of the long story is then um, they came over and uh, wrote me tickets. You know, I was I was uh, 
written a ticket for menacing. And I did not ever approach the officers, never. Mm -hmm. I didn't even, I mean, I said two things. One, you're targeting a gay bar that's not right. And two, you should find something better to do with your time. Those are the two things I said. And for that, I was written a ticket for menacing, um, disorderly conduct, and public intoxication. And um, those tickets were dismissed pretty quickly because there was really no merit for the stop. And they mm -hmm. knew that. Um, but at any rate, I had to report it because that's policy. Now, you mentioned Covington. So this is outside the jurisdiction of the Hamilton County that's Sheriff. That's right. Yes. City of Cincinnati. This is over in Covington, Kentucky. That's right. And I had to report it. So I had to lay the facts down on a piece of paper. Mm. Well, <laughs> there you go. I mean, I was outed. I was in a gay bar. And this is why, we, you know, and this is what happened. And this is what I said. And Simon Lease was the sheriff at the time. And he did give me five days off of work. I it was the only discipline of my entire career that I ever received of 33 years of service with over 100 commendations. I received one discipline, and that was conduct unbecoming for being in a gay bar. Hmm. And um, So how did that affect your future career under Sheriff Lease? Oh, I, I knew I would never have an opportunity to do anything else. He didn't. I thought he was going to fire me, honestly. Mm -hmm. I really did. I was so fearful that I was going to get fired. But he didn't fire me. He gave me five days off. Um, and um, I just, you know, I, I said, well, you know, I'm getting down towards the end of my career. And I, hopefully I can keep my head down and, and just stay here. So, um, Sheriff-elect, you've become sort of an accidental trailblazer, I think I would yes. call it. You know, kind of like accidental presidents. They become president because the, you know, when a president passes away in office and then the vice president becomes president, there's a good book called Accidental Presidents. Mm -hmm. And now you're an accidental trailblazer. Right. Particularly because of the notor some of the notoriety you've gotten locally and nationally as a result of your victory. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And I mean that in the sense that you did not Join law enforcement in the 1970s to make history someday or early 80s to make history someday. But here you are. What do you hope your success will mean to others, both in the LGBTQ community, young girls, mm -hmm. other minorities? Sure. Well, I hope my success uh, will influence those people that you just mentioned, anybody that belongs to those groups that face barriers. And I hope they'll realize that, you know, stay the course and don't give it up. I mean, I'm here because I didn't give up. It's that plain and simple. I just wasn't going to give up. And um, I took a lot of hits and bumps and bruises. And I want to tell people it's difficult. But, you know, I've always have a, had a particular way I wanted to run my life a particular way that I felt about my personal ethics and that I was going to do what I thought was the right thing. And, you know, it's hard to hold that line because there's a lot of push and pulls, particularly in the law enforcement arena. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of peer pressure to go along, a tremendous amount. The good old boys, as you saw with me, I mean, when they come after you, wow, I mean, it's no small deal. And so I understand why people go along. But, you know, I'm just hoping that I influence 
anyone, uh, regardless of your station in life, to know that uh, do the right thing for you because in the morning, you have to get up and look at yourself in the mirror for the rest of your life. And that has to be the right thing. And I have no regrets over any of the things that I did. And quite frankly, I became a bit of a lightning rod. I did during my career for things Mm -hmm. like this. Um, But it was because I never went along. I never. Yeah, you weren't following the blue code, or whatever that's called. uh. Right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, the the code. There is a code, and I I didn't follow it. Police officers stick together, come hell or high water. Right. And and you know there are so many, and I always like to say this to people. Look, there are so many good, great officers, people in uniform, who are wearing that badge for the right reason. I love them, and I would give my life for them, and they would give their life for me in uniform. That's the real code. Mm-hmm. The real code is I will do whatever's necessary to do the right thing with you. And and there are so many of those officers, and you know it's exactly why we have to change the system now. Yeah, it's the old expression we heard uh, when we were growing up: "One bad apple spoils the broth." You know, I've I've always mm-hmm. thought. of companies, 99% of supervisors are good people. Yes. And yet 1% maybe steps out of line, does the wrong thing, and it makes everybody else look bad. Oh, absolutely. You know, one company sued for sexual harassment. All of a sudden that's in the newspaper and people start talking about this problem with sexual harassment in corporate America. No, it's a problem with sexual harassment in this one particular place. Right. That's right. But you got to stand up for it, and I admire you for that. Well, I thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking your time this afternoon to join us. I think a lot of young girls will find some joy and hope seeing Kamala Harris as our first vice president. I'm thrilled about that, by the way. <laughs> and now there's a new sheriff in town who can provide some females with a local role model. And I wish you the best of success. Thank you, Randy. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Glad to have you here today. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com and freaking out about is all one word. Thank you everyone. 